James chapter 5. Okay, the reward system in the Johnson household this summer, I must say, is money. Okay, that is how we are getting good behavior from my three young boys as we are paying them. Okay, <laughs> don't judge me. Put your eyebrows down. It's working. Okay, so here's how it goes. You show kindness, you get a nickel. You show grace, you get a dime. You punch your brother in the face and then lie about it, you're going to give me two dimes. Okay, this is working. I cannot believe how effective it has been the, so far this summer. And here's why. The Johnson boys, they don't want to lose their money. And they can't get enough of it. And boy, do I get that. And so did James. James 5 is talking about money. I think that what he is saying is that how we handle our money will greatly affect our ability to move towards spiritual maturity. Okay, here he is. He's at the end of his letter. He's already poked and he's already prodded at how we respond during trials or losses. He's revealed our issues with favoritism, our, ish, our issues with words. And then last week, we heard what he said about our friendship with the world and how it is hostility toward God. And here in chapter 5, he keeps going strong. So let's look first at the first six verses. He's here talking to the rich. Now, this isn't new, guys. The topic has been mentioned throughout, right? James has been saying throughout the letter that riches are often a test of our faith. So if we don't obtain the correct perspective, or you could say the correct attitude on riches, then we will never near that spiritual soundness, that spiritual completeness that we desire. Specifically, in chapter 5, what I see is that James is drawing attention to the impatience of the rich. Do you guys see that? Here's what he says. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So he starts with this warning to the rich. Now there is a question about what group of rich people he is talking to. It could likely be that he's actually addressing a group of non-believers who are oppressing the dispersed church. But it could also be that these are a group of rich people who in a way have failed the test of riches. They have gotten tripped up by their wealth. Do you guys remember how we said earlier that our tongues can betray us because they reveal what's really going on in our heart? I think he's saying much of the same here. He says that their wealth has betrayed them. It's revealed a false or shallow faith. Either way, here's the miseries that he lays out for them. Your, your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver corroded. Here's what you've done. You've laid up treasures in the last days. So he's saying, you've made a pile of your toys and you're sitting atop it in the corner. So what's the warning for us? I mean, do we need to hear this admonishment? Well, of course we do. And I want to make this point now that this applies to all of us, no matter where we are financially. Whether you're a student who is going $10,000 in debt each year, or you are set making $100,000 a year, the word is for all of us. And here's what we need to hear. Let not your reward be here, friends. 
Don't lay up treasures. Don't lay up rewards in these last days. Because here, here is the land of rotting and moth. He's saying there's this way to completion and wholeness of your faith. That's what we've been talking about for five weeks. But you have not chosen the way of completion, but of corrosion. He's saying, be sad. You have failed the test of riches. While I laid out pure joy, albeit by way of suffering, you have chosen misery. Grieve. I've laid out something lasting, but you've chosen what is time-bound. Mourn. While I have laid out what is imperishable, you have selected what will most assuredly perish, what will rot, what will corrode. See, he's saying to the rich and maybe to us, you've been caught red-handed in your impatience. You wanted wealth and you wanted security and you wanted it now. You have fallen for the lie that we are to live our best life now. Ever heard that? And here's how you got caught. This is what he says. Somebody has told on you. So back in the text, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He says, you're oppressing your laborers, the people that work for you. You're not paying them what you said you would pay them. See, while the maturing Christian sees the poor as co-heirs, you're seeing them as someone to use to get what you want, to further your progress, to increase your gains. And now you oppressors, you're in trouble because the cries of those you're oppressing have reached the ears of who? The Lord of hosts. Let's pause for a moment and look at a story where the Lord of hosts is introduced. You might be familiar with this. In 1 Samuel 1, we meet a woman named Hannah. Now, Hannah was married to a man named Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives, one being Hannah and one was Penina. The Bible says Penina had children, but Hannah had none. It says that Penina, the one with plenty, provoked the one without Hannah. Penina, the rich, mistreated Hannah, the poor. Year after year, it says that she provoked her grievously. So I think we can think like verbal abuse at its worst. And then one day in deep distress, Hannah goes in prayer. She's weeping bitterly and she prays this, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Okay, ladies, listen to this. This is so neat. Hannah is the first person in the Bible to name God the Lord of hosts, which is translated the Lord of the armies. Isn't it beautiful that she uses this name? I mean, think about it. This woman who was completely alone, no baby in her arms and no babies at her ankle, thinking that nobody can see the oppression she's receiving from Penina. She calls on the Lord with the army. So the empty, the alone woman, she calls out on the God with the multitudes, the God with the battalion, the commander-in-chief. Isn't that beautiful? And the Lord of hosts, he hears her prayer. 
And he speaks through the priest Eli who answers her, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor, favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Ladies, the Lord of hosts has an ear for the oppressed, as we see in both 1 Samuel and James. He hears her prayer and he gives her a son, a son that she would quite literally give back to the Lord. It would be Samuel. Samuel is the prophet who anointed David, and it was David who would later face Goliath, and as he did, who does he call on? But the Lord of hosts, that he might defeat his enemy. The Lord of hosts has an ear for the oppressed. And for us today, this can be an encouragement. How I hope that we can be the women who always bring our lack, our empty, our barrenness, our need before the Lord of hosts, rather than being the women who get tripped up by riches. How I pray that we can be those who, who don't fall for the spell of riches or wealth or materialism, but rather the ones who are calling out for the Lord of hosts. Well, back in James, we read that the cries of the oppressed rose to him. And this is bad news for the obstinate rich. He continues to unpack this very ominous warning. He now says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So what's he saying? Well, as you live in luxury and in self-indulgence, you are just fattening yourself up like the Christmas pig, okay, before the day of slaughter. What's this warning? Do we need to hear this reproach? Well, I think so. See, when impatience resides in our hearts, and we can't fathom waiting for heaven to get our reward, what do we do? We indulge here. Right? And when we do that, we become like the Christmas pig. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we fatten ourselves up? Please think beyond pastries and pizza with me. Okay? I think this reprimand is fitting for us because I believe that we are often guilty of hoarding our riches. And that is how we can relate with this text. Let me just go through a list. These are just signs that you and I might be hoarding our wealth and therefore falling under this warning that James is giving. Ladies, you and I might be hoarding if we don't tithe our 10% to the church. No excuses. You and I might be hoarding if we don't ever go above and beyond to give to a mission trip or to give to the homeless man on the side of the street. But maybe in a little bit different way, we could be guilty of this when we pinch and we scrape to save every penny possible, but then we'll never serve a gourmet meal to our family. Or maybe we keep the budget so tightly wound that we never splurge on a friend's birthday gift. Or even in another way, maybe it's not hoarding just our money, but our stuff. Maybe you have been given this nice home, but you never want to open your doors to dirty neighbor children 
or needy women from the workplace. Or you have plenty of room in your home, but you don't want that inconvenience of an open door policy. And the problem with hoarding is that it betrays us in a number of ways, just like our mouths. One way, it reveals that we doubt God's generosity. Oh, if I give it away, then I might not get my savings account back up to this level. And maybe you're not thinking about James chapter 1 where we already looked at doubting God's generosity. How was that man described? The man who doubts, he is double-minded. He is unstable in all that he does. He's tossed by the waves. Hoarding also betrays us when it reveals self-trust. We're just trusting in ourselves to balance that budget, to keep everyone secure and comfortable. And third, I think it also reveals that we have many lovers, as we looked at in chapter four that Carly taught. When we hoard, it reveals that we love many things, maybe in addition to loving God. And he was pretty clear that that means enmity towards the Lord. Guys, here's the sobering reality of your life. When you behave as that Christmas pig, fattening up your storage closet and your savings account, indulging, indulging in comforts and delicacies of various kinds, here's what the word says to us. It says we're far from being spiritually vibrant in those times. 1 Timothy 5.6 explains it saying, but she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she is alive. And Revelation says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You're as dead as the chubby pig on the Christmas table. You're dead. Your riches have betrayed you. You are not alive. You are not a thriving, spiritual, faith-filled person. And why is that? It's because riches are dangerous, ladies. Please hear me say, it's not that money is bad. It's that riches on any scale are dangerous. I'm not condemning you if you are set financially or if you drive a new car. It's not that money is bad. It's that wealth is dangerous. See, riches deceive us. Think of it this way. Don't we save and, and indulge and protect our, our toys and our money so that we can be free of worry, right? Don't we do this? We, we store it all up in hopes of feeling secure and in hopes of feeling in control. But true security eludes us. And the only sense of control that we get is false, like a house of cards. See, it's the riches who actually make us anxious. Have you ever experienced that? Bonhoeffer says, earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give it security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what cause anxiety. James is not done. He continues to unpack the perils of riches. So more than just tying us to this time-bound world, he starts to show us that they also have this dangerous ability to change our relationships. Here's the cycle that I see from these first six verses. So when I love the things of the world, so think James chapter four, when I love the world's riches and, and its lust and its toys, I start to fear losing them, 
right? So picture the toddler in the nursery who is picking up every toy possible because he's so afraid that somebody else will take them. And so he's got his arms full of them. See, when I fear, I respond to that feeling of fear by trying to control life. It's like this way of overcompensating. And when I'm attempting to control life, to silence that anxiety, I'm actually at risk for using people. I use them as a way to get ahead. I use them as a way to store up more of what I love in life. It's not just dollars, but it could be acceptance, friends, affirmations. And the truth is that when I'm using people, I cannot serve them. Have you ever thought about this in your own life? This is a large part of my story that I have already shared this summer. But both, both Matt and I are, are extroverts, people, people, however you would say that. And we went in a time of life where we just thought like, yeah, we've just got all these people. We're doing ministry for them. And it got to a point where we realized that we needed them. See, we needed them to be at our stuff. We needed their affirmations, their head nods. We needed their compliments. In fact, we were addicted to them. We became addicted to the fact that the people, the masses, the friends, were there to make us feel validated, to feel important, to pad our identity. And because we needed them, we were using them. We weren't actually serving them. When we need people, we cannot serve them. And when we don't serve them, the church is a very unhealthy place to be. I feel like that's what James is saying here, that when we become addicted to wealth in any one of its forms, the unity of the body gets really broken, really fractured. So rather than impatiently storing up riches here and now on this side of heaven, what are we to do? What does James tell us to do? Look at verse 7 through 12. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he has just gone through a warning, and it has been very thorough. Now he's going to turn and, and address these people who are waiting, these people who are suffering, the people who have been hearing this whole letter. And what is he saying to them, which is the majority of that young church? He's saying, be patient in awaiting your reward. Heaven's reward is far better than earthly money. He's saying, I know that you're not getting a reward here and now, but you will. Does it make you think of that verse in 1 Peter that describes a reward as an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept safely in heaven for us. See, when the Lord comes, he will bring your reward, church. He will bring your riches just as he brings rain for the farmer. So be patient and establish your hearts. Be patient, putting your hope in heaven. Sit tight and don't grumble. Remain steadfast. See, in the first six verses, James was warning against that rich man who was mistreating the laborers. Now what James is doing is he's cautioning the poor, or you could say the waiting, 
telling them, make sure you treat one another well. He's saying, play nice, church, because the judge is standing at the door. The nearness of this judge is both a caution and an encouragement to us. So we should wait well. Did you guys notice how James once again sounded a lot like his half-brother who would say on repeat, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is near. So learn to labor and to wait like a farmer. Labor with hope, wait with grace. Labor with eternity on your heart and wait with steadfastness. He's saying fend off impatience that desire to have your best life now. Fend it off and rather long for heaven. Spurgeon says it perfectly. Be patient, O worker, for impatience sours the temper. It chills the blood. It sickens the heart. Wait thou clothed with patience like a champion clad in steel. Ladies, wait with a sweet grace as one who guards the faith and sets an example of humility. Disciple of Jesus, learn to labor and to wait. James then makes it really easy once again for the teacher because he provides all his own illustrations. It's awesome. So he now is going to prove that this harvest of patience is far better than the quick sprout of impatience with the story of Job. Well, you guys looked at this in your homework. What you saw is that Job was a righteous man, so he was unparalleled by any other. And we're going to be brief with this story, but you guys read that he was a man that was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So he was rich in both finances and faith. But then God allowed great trouble and loss to come his way. See, when Job's uh, riches rotted, when his garments were eaten by moths, when his gold and silver corroded, his hope did not falter. So because he was a righteous man, meaning his spiritual wealth far exceeded his material wealth, he, he had this capacity for suffering. Do you remember how we talked about that with earthly wisdom versus heavenly wisdom? The man with earthly wisdom has no capacity for suffering. There's no room for it. So when it comes, that person who's doing life with earthly wisdom ends up quarreling and causing problems. But those of us who live life with heavenly wisdom are instructed by James to have to have a capacity for suffering where we will accept it from the Lord. That when something goes bad, we have this soft heart towards it. That's how Job was. He had a space for it. And while he did grieve greatly, he asked really hard questions. And he even shook his fist at the heavens. He did not blame God. And he did not look for shortcuts to get back to prosperity. Rather, through his trials, what did he learn? He learned more about who God was. He didn't really get answers to why life had to be hard. But he did learn who God was. He learned that he is so above human ways. He learned that he is so beyond our meager attempts to control him that he is so much bigger than our mind's ability to understand. 
And therefore, he was not undone by loss. To Job, just like Jesus, had a much bigger perspective in the midst of his trials. What are we to do with this? How do we wait well? We're all waiting for something, even if it's just the Lord's return. But in other times of life, times of hardship, where things are moving slowly, a prayer doesn't get answered, we have a chronic pain, a chronic frustration. We are all called to wait. How do we do it well? I think a lot could be said on this, so I just want to draw out one thing that I think is tied to the message of James. I think we should seek wisdom. And specifically, let's make sure we're seeking wisdom, not knowledge. Now, we differentiated that on week two. We said, what's the difference? Maybe knowledge is raw information and wisdom is the application of that. But what does that actually look like in our request before God? See, I think sometimes you and I think we're asking for wisdom, but we're still asking for knowledge. I mean, maybe we're mature enough that we're not going to ask this question of, why me, God, when things get bad? But I do think we still say, how does this end? See, when things go bad, when things go slow, when rain's not coming, I do think we are tempted to say, can I please read the last page first, God? I want to know that this does work out. I want to know that this works out, that my faith and my family will survive this hardship, that rain will come. We want the answers, ladies. We want the outcomes, and we want the guarantees. And when that is true of us, we want knowledge, not wisdom. But to wait well, we must seek wisdom. Because wisdom will move us beyond that and allow us to obtain perspective on who God is. And it will enable us to apply his character to our given situation. So if God is all-knowing, then you do not have to know when the waiting period, period will end. If God is good, then you will not drift away from him during loss, but will rather remain near. If God is unchanging, then we can have great hope amidst great uncertainty. How do we wait? Well, we keep that great hope on our eyelids like a farmer sitting tight watching the horizon for a rain cloud. We put our hope in a joy that is where? Set before us. Psalm 126.5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Ladies, can you believe this for whatever it is for you right now? Do you hear that farming language? Can you believe that you will reap with songs of joy and that you will carry sheaves with you, the abundance of waiting on God. Ladies, let's not let our hope be here. Let's not let our reward be here. There is so much more to come. James then starts to conclude his letter. Here we go, the final stretch of James 5. Let's stride out, kick it in, 
So we need so many more weeks to finish this chapter well. I'm not even going to try to uh, explain each of these verses. I'm going to be brief. Here's what I see. James closes down with a call to faith. That faith made evidence by prayer. So he says, simply put, pray in everything. In sickness, in good times, in suffering, in times of sin, pray. Simply put, why? Because the prayer of the faithful have a lot of power. The more mature you are, right? That's what we've been talking about all, all study. The more mature you are, the more you will pray. The more you pray, the more mature you will become, right? Maybe that's pretty common sense to you guys, right? I don't think that's a new word for you. So what I want to land on from these verses is this communal description I see described by James. So the prayers that he talks about, they're like bonds that tie us together. So look around this room. Who is suffering? Pray for her. Who looks happy and like a million bucks? Pray a prayer of praise for her. And who is sick? Who is depressed? Who is anxious? Who is full of cancer? Pray. And ladies, see that each time you pray for the other women in this room and in the body of Christ, what you're doing is you're building a web. And it is stronger with each prayer and it is building up the body of Christ. Then when we realize that at the end of the book, maybe we'll look back at the first four chapters and realize that the whole book was written with this communal idea in mind. The whole point of James's letter is that we would draw together so that we may draw near to God. And then there's one final illustration aptly provided by the author. The illustration of Elijah. What's it say? Elijah was a man like us. He had a nature like ours. So what, what does that mean? Well, simply put, Elijah was a man who had really high highs and really low lows. Okay? He experienced times of plenty, full of miracles, and then he had times of want. He had these great spiritual feats, and then he had seasons of really dark doubt. The spiritual mood swings were many in Elijah's life. Yet he kept progressing in his relationship with God. I mean, even to the point where he is mentioned in the New Testament as standing beside Jesus in the transfiguration. I think what James is drawing out is that why that was even possible for a man like us is his commitment to prayer. He communed with God, as one pastor says it. May this be true of us too, ladies. You guys know this book is not about behavior modification, right? We know that. This book has not been about us becoming more impressive women or varsity Christians. The book is written to men and women with a nature like ours. Women with high highs and low lows. Women who are giants of faith at times. Those with flaccid faith at other times. But the invitation is actually just to draw near to God in all these things. It's more about finding this posture, this bent knee, fleshy heart, teachable spirit that's always leaning in, looking for Jesus, straining our ear to hear the gospel in the book of James. And see, I actually wonder if you guys would allow yourself to feel inadequate as we close down the study, that you would actually be borderline meager or inept at this finale 
because it's then that you are in a posture to seek Jesus. Do you guys remember how James introduced himself in verse 1 of chapter 1? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, he didn't mention that he was pastoring a megachurch in Jerusalem. He doesn't name drop Jesus as his brother. He doesn't mention any of his pompous nicknames. He just says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you're with me and you would say, yeah, I think I get that more now. After looking at this book, I would most definitely no longer introduce myself with any spiritual credentials behind my name. I'm not Rebecca the Just, Rebecca the Righteous. So maybe as we close this study, we would actually fall in step with James and call ourselves bond servants of Jesus. We all have a long way to go in maturity, and that's okay. So we could study this book again in 20 years, and I think we would find even then that we haven't mastered our tongue. We still haven't subdued our double hearts. But if today, if this summer, we would see ourselves as fortunate slaves of Jesus, of James's brother, I think we'll look back in those 20 years and say, hey, I'm further along than I was. If we would remain bound, shackled to Jesus, we will find that through the years we will mature. So ladies, count it all joy as you seek out pure religion. Put it on the list. The trials, the tests, the losses, the spiritual growing pains that you are experiencing. Put it on the list with the other good things in life. And know the hope that is yours. We'll close with more words from Spurgeon. Wait for the results of sanctified affliction, that every virtue would be strengthened and every grace refined, if God would recycle your pain for your good, ladies, if he would bring you close by turmoil or trial, then it will most assuredly be worth it. Any furnace, any lion's den, any cross, it will be worth it.